the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. Someone said that the story about Herod and his family sounds uh, very much like a modern-day soap opera. There is divorce, there is adultery mentioned, remarriage, jealousy, revenge, lust, cruelty, violence. You'll even see incest brought out here. If this were a television show, it perhaps could be called As Herod Turns, or maybe All Herod's Children. But it is a bizarre story. This is Verse by Verse, coming to you from Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In today's Bible class, Pastor Steve Kreloff begins his final message in this series from Matthew chapter 14. The focus in the next three messages will be on Herod the Tetrarch. Today we will get a glimpse into Herod the Evil Man. Thanks for tuning in. The free book offer we have been making on Verse by Verse can still be yours. Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd is a 207-page volume containing some of Pastor Steve's landmark sermons from his ministry at Lakeside. It can be yours for a gift of any size to Verse by Verse Ministries, P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida, 33758. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get settled into our class. Here is Pastor Steve. Years ago, the St. Petersburg Times had a sports columnist who would write articles about well-known athletes from the past, individuals who at one time appeared quite frequently in the media spotlight, but had since essentially disappeared from the public's eye. The title of this writer's column was always in the form of a question. It would start off, whatever happened to, and then he would supply the name of the former great athlete to finish the sentence. Well, based on our study of the gospel of Matthew. There is a similar question that we could ask about a great Bible character that we have not heard about for a while, and that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the man who introduced Jesus as Messiah and King to the nation of Israel. We first met John the Baptist back in Matthew chapter 3 when we saw him preaching in the wilderness, telling the people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And we learned at that time in chapter 3 that in response to his preaching, he baptized many people. Those who repented of their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Why? Because John not only introduced Jesus to Israel, but it was his task to help the nation spiritually prepare for their king's arrival by calling them to repent, which means forsake your sin, And then he baptized those who did repent as a visible sign of that repentance. Now, apart from a couple of brief references to John in chapters 4 and 9 in Matthew's gospel, the next time we hear about John the Baptist is in chapter 11, 
where we are told this interesting story about John being in prison. But while in prison, he's hearing reports about Christ's ministry, and he's having some serious doubt as to whether Jesus is even the the Messiah or not. And so John, we read, sends some of his disciples to Jesus. Apparently, he could receive visitors in prison. He sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah or should we expect somebody else? Jesus answers John through his disciples. He sends his disciples back to their teacher with words of assurance that he indeed is the genuine Messiah. And then the Lord pays great tribute to John by telling the crowd of people that John up to that point was the greatest man who had ever lived. But after this episode in which the Lord answered John's doubt, paid great tribute to him, we really need, we read nothing more in the Gospel of Matthew about this great man of God. Matthew instead chooses to focus totally on Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his miracles, the various reactions, usually negative reactions to him. And so a very reasonable question for us to ask, especially in light of the fact that the last time we heard anything about John when he was in prison, is this question, whatever happened to John the Baptist? This once very popular figure in Israel, who was actually the first prophet that the Jewish people had had in over 400 years, he just seems to have disappeared from the religious scene. So what what did happen to John? How did this great man end up in prison, and did he get ever get out of prison? Well, the answers to those questions about John are given to us by Matthew in chapter 14. So let's turn there. Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, it is the beginning of a new chapter for us. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 13, at least the beginning of verse 13. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it and they went and reported to Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Now, with these verses, not only are we told how John ended up in prison, but Matthew tells us how his life ended as well. We read that Herod, the Tetrarch, had him decapitated, and his head was then placed on a platter, a grisly, gross story. And now, you may wonder why Matthew chose this particular point in his gospel account to tell us about how John's life ended. In fact, Maybe you haven't wondered why would Matthew do that, so let me cause you to think about this. Why now? Why here? At first glance, this this passage just seems to come out of nowhere. Chapter 13, I remind you, closed with Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth, and they rejected him. 
They reject him. They said he's just the carpenter's son. Nobody, no big deal. He's not coming in here telling us he's the king and Messiah. He's just a local boy. He's not anything special. And that's how chapter 13 ends. And then all of a sudden we're told about Herod and John and his head being cut off. Why? And not only that, but I would also make you aware of the fact that Matthew's account of John the Baptist's death doesn't fit chronologically right after Christ's rejection at Nazareth. It, it doesn't come sequentially in time after that. Notice verse 3 says, for when Herod had John arrested. Notice John's arrest is presented in the past tense. It didn't happen right after Nazareth. In other words, the story of John's arrest is actually a flashback to an event that took place earlier in time. And we know from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we know the time. We know that John was arrested at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, which was about a year prior to this. So, so John was arrested at the onset of Christ's ministry, and he's remained in prison for about a year, and then he was executed. So in telling us about John's arrest, Matthew is telling us about an event that took place a year prior to Christ's rejection at Nazareth. So the question is on the table. Why then did Matthew choose to insert this story about John the Baptist right here in his gospel? Bible writers didn't just randomly throw stories together. Bible writers had a scheme. Bible writers had a design. Bible writers moved upon a theme. Things fit together. There's a logical flow to their, their presentation of their writings. Now listen closely. The key to understanding why Matthew went to such great lengths here to give us the details about John's arrest and then his ultimate death at the beginning of chapter 14 is really found in Christ's reaction to hearing about John's death, look at verse 13 again, just the beginning, which is all that I read up to. It says, now when Jesus heard about John, meaning he heard about his death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. What Matthew is telling us is this, that with the death of John the Baptist, Jesus knew that his rejection was now complete and conclusive. In other words, if they killed the forerunner of the Messiah, they're soon coming after the Messiah. The Lord sees the handwriting on the wall, if you will. He knows that the time will soon be upon him to be killed as well. And that is precisely why we are told by Matthew that Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded spot. He means a secluded spot on the Sea of Galilee. See, not only did Jesus withdraw to the secluded spot in order to privately grieve over John's death, but it's also an indication by Matthew that the Lord is about to withdraw from his public ministry in order to concentrate on privately teaching his disciples. In other words, with the death of John the Baptist, Christ knows that his rejection by the masses of, of people is now, it's official, it's beyond question. And so, as the rejected king, the time has come for him to remove himself from the public spotlight in order to concentrate on a more personalized training of his disciples. These are the ones who are going to be left behind after his death and resurrection. They're going to have to deal with this world that will continue to reject him, continue to reject the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christ will, will become a recluse. I'm not suggesting that Jesus will never have any public ministry anymore. That would not be accurate. But the text indicates, the, the next section and passages indicate that the focus of Christ's ministry is now turned away from the public crowds to his own personal disciples. 
And so the opening verses of Matthew 14 serve really as a transition in the gospel of Matthew as we move from the previous chapters, which remember, they focused on the king being rejected. Matthew told us about all kinds of attitudes of rejections and negativity towards Christ that Matthew was telling us through all those stories, the king is being rejected. That's why the parables are where they are, because Jesus no longer is going to speak to the crowds like he once did because they've rejected him. So Matthew is is moving from the king being rejected to a new section that will focus on, watch this, the rejected king withdrawing from the crowds in order to give his attention to privately training his disciples. But I want you to know that this opening passage in Matthew 14 is more than a mere transition to a new section in the gospel. It also serves, note this, as an illustration of the hard-heartedness of unbelief. When Matthew told us about the people of Nazareth and how they rejected Jesus, he was telling us about the kind of hardened unbelief that people can have towards the Savior. These were, these were people who grew up with Christ. They saw Christ, and yet they rejected him. They knew him better than anybody else. They said he's only the town's carpenter. Nobody's special. Therefore, they refused out of their wicked pride to humble themselves before him as their king and Messiah. And the reason Matthew told us that is to say, you know what? They're living illustrations of the parable of the sower. How hard can you be? The Lord is there. He's ministering. And you reject him. But now today in our passage, we're given another glimpse into the wickedness of hardened unbelief as we get to observe one man's reaction to the truth as proclaimed by not so much Jesus, but John the Baptist. And that man is none other than what the Bible calls Herod the Tetrarch, who was the ruler of Galilee at that time. Now notice the entire passage actually is focusing on Herod. Though, though Jesus is mentioned, and John the Baptist is certainly mentioned, the, the concentrated effort is to tell us about Herod. The passage speaks of Herod having John arrested, of Herod's wife of Herod's birthday party, of his wife's daughter, of Herod's orders to kill John. As I said, the passage may mention John and and Jesus, but they're certainly not the main characters. Herod is the main character because the intent of these verses, folks, is to give us insight once again into the wicked mind of this very wicked man in order to, uh, to explain to us this is how unbelief reacts to the truth. In fact, someone said that the story about Herod and his family sounds uh, very much like a modern-day soap opera. There is divorce, there is adultery mentioned, remarriage, jealousy, revenge, lust, cruelty, violence. You'll even see incest brought out here. If this were a television show, it perhaps could be called As Herod Turns, or maybe All Herod's Children. But it is a bizarre story. But in spite of the bizarre things that show up in this narrative, Keep in mind, the main point of the passage is to show us the stubborn and wicked unbelief of Herod. Now, although there are differences, in, certainly in the way that the people of Nazareth and Herod reacted to the truth, they both illustrate what Jesus was teaching in the parable of the sower, that there are some people who have hearts that are so hardened to the truth that God's word simply will not, it does not impact them. They don't give it a second thought. It bounces right off of them. There's never any consideration given to whether the truth might indeed be the truth. And so these two stories 
about the people of Nazareth and Herod are placed right next to each other by design. They're right next to each other in order to illustrate the depth of hardened unbelief in the human heart. Therefore, they give us significant insight into the way that unbelief thinks, the way that unbelief operates. And, and just as we said when we studied the last passage of chapter 13, that there were sp- some specific actions that characterized the hardness of the people of Nazareth. So there are certain elements of Herod's unbelief that stand out in this passage. And it's these very elements of Herod's unbelief that help us to understand why people today continue to reject Jesus Christ. See, if you want to understand why people today, people you witness to, people I witness to, reject Christ, then learn from this case study of Herod. Because Matthew, under divine inspiration, gives us a look into why Herod reacted the way he did. And this case study of Herod will give us insight into why people reject Christ today. Because in principle, the same things that drove Herod to reject the truth still drives people now to reject the truth in Christ. There are actually two elements of Herod's unbelief that stand out in this passage. And so let's begin to look at the first one. What is the first element of Herod's unbelief that we read about? It's this. Number one, he had a guilty conscience that refused to seek divine forgiveness. Herod had a guilty conscience that refused to seek divine forgiveness. Notice verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. Now the passage begins by introducing us to Herod, who Matthew identifies as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, it's very helpful to understand that the New Testament speaks of several Herods. So when we read the name Herod mentioned in Scripture, we do need to ask ourselves, which Herod is this passage talking about? The first Herod that is mentioned in the New Testament, we have to go back in time to know about, and that is the man called Herod the Great. What a pompous person to call himself the Great. But he called himself Herod the Great. He was the original Herod. This is not the man of this story. He's the original Herod, the man that Rome chose to be the ruler of Israel at the time that Jesus was born. It is Herod the Great that we read about in the opening chapters of Matthew, the man who was responsible for having the babies killed in Bethlehem because he was seeking to murder the, the infant Christ child. Now, upon the death of Herod the Great, Rome then divided the land of Israel into several regions, and they placed three of Herod's sons. That's why they're all named Herod, but they're not, it's not, they're not Herod the Great. Three of Herod's sons as rulers over those areas. And one of these sons named Herod Antipas, that's what secular history, specifically Josephus, the Jewish historian who worked for Rome, tells us his name was. One son named Herod Antipas was given the rule over two regions in Israel, Galilee in the north and a region called Perea. Perea is, is an area on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Today, it is mostly the modern country of Jordan, but back then, it was part of Israel. It was called Perea. And this man, Herod Antipas, was given by Rome the rule over those two areas. Now, it is this Herod, Herod Antipas, that Matthew is writing about in chapter 14. He doesn't call him Herod Antipas. He calls him instead Herod the Tetrarch. Why? Well, the word Tetrarch was essentially a title uh, of someone who was a subordinate ruler. 
uh, sort of like a governor, but probably even lower than a governor. It's interesting that in verse 9, he is referred to by Matthew, and then later in Mark's gospel, or I should say in the parallel passage, he is referred to as king, but he wasn't really a king. He he was uh, called king because he liked to think of himself as a king. He wanted others to call him king, but technically he was just a secondary ruler over two regions in Israel. However, as tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, he was the ruler over the regions where John the Baptist ministered. John ministered primarily in Perea, and Jesus ministered in Galilee, and so they came under his jurisdiction, and that's what makes him a significant figure in the New Testament. That is the only reason he figures into the narratives in the New Testament. Now, I want you to notice something important about what Matthew has to say about Herod in verse 1. He writes, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus. Matthew tells us, as he opens this passage, that at a certain time, which he calls and refers to, at that time, Herod heard about Jesus. Now, what time is he talking about? When you, when you read a phrase like that in Scripture, you have to stop, you should stop and say, at that time, at what time? What time is he talking about? Well, when we put the parallel passages together, specifically Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, Mark in, partic- in particular tells us a great deal about this that Matthew leaves out. But when we, when we put this together, the parallel passages, we understand that the time that, that we're told about was the time that Jesus sent his apostles out into the villages and towns all around Galilee to do miracles, to proclaim the message of Christ and tell people about him and salvation. This was their first missionary journey. What Matthew actually has told us about out of order back in chapter 10. And so Matthew tells us now that it was at this time, the time when the apostles were traveling all over Galilee, ministering in Christ's name, doing miracles, preaching, and all that went into that, that Herod heard about Jesus. Now, that's very interesting because it may very well be the first time that Herod has heard about Jesus. I find that fascinating because Jesus has been ministering all over Galilee for about a year. He's a well-known figure amongst the, the Jewish people in Galilee, and it may very well be that this is the first time Herod has ever heard about him. And that, and that would indicate how out of touch Herod was with the people that he ruled, and that fits perfectly with what we know from secular history about this man. History reveals specifically, as I said, Josephus, that Herod ruled over the Jewish Jewish people, but he despised them. He was their ruler, but he actually hated the people. He had no interest in their religious affairs, even though he claimed to be a convert to Judaism. He was not a, a Jew. He was not born a Jew. He claimed, though, to be a convert to Judaism, but the man had no time and no interest in spiritual matters. He was just like his father in the sense that he was preoccupied with luxurious living. We're told by Josephus that he resided in two palaces, one at a place called Machaerus on the shores of the Dead Sea, what would be now Jordan. That was a palace as well as a dungeon fortress, which is probably where John the Baptist was was kept. It was certainly far removed from Christ's ministry in Galilee. All you need to do is is look on... uh, a map, a Bible map 
in usually in the back of your Bibles to see where the Dead Sea was and where Machaerus would have been located, far removed from Christ's ministry. But the other palace wasn't an area of Galilee. It was in the city of Tiberias in Galilee. Tiberias is the place where those of you who have gone to Israel usually stay when you visit uh, Galilee. It is, it is the most developed city along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's either you have stayed there or you have stayed near Tiberias. But it is fascinating to note that the New Testament never records Jesus visiting Tiberias. Do you realize that? Now, he may have visited Tiberias, but it never records that. He probably did not visit that city, perhaps because he didn't want to arouse Herod's attention and cause a premature confrontation. In our next class session, we will continue our study of this evil man, Herod. Pastor Steve will show how guilty Herod, the man, really was. Thank you for being with us today. We will continue to offer the book, Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd, for the next two programs only. We encourage you not to miss this opportunity. It is being sent to anyone who sends a gift to help keep Verse by Verse on the air. You can send your gift to Verse by Verse Ministries, P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida, 33758. You may also donate online at our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can give by credit card or PayPal. Or you can call us at 727-239-0306 for more information. That's 727-239-0306. We deeply... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.